The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of Merrin Talks Money. Uh, With me today, I've got John Stapik as an exciting treat for you all for the entire episode. And also with us today is Emily Nicole, who is a crypto reporter at Bloomberg. Now, Emily has been doing something quite interesting, which is talking constructively to the Bank of England. Mostly all of us have been doing recently is just religiously criticizing the Bank of England. But Emily, you've been in to have a conversation with someone at the Bank of England about uh, their response response to the rise of cryptocurrencies, right? Yeah, I mean, well, actually, we had them come to us. How fancy, you know, making the Bank of England trudge across Threadneedle Street over to Bloomberg HQ. Um, But yeah, we had a conversation about uh, central bank digital currencies, which, to be clear, is not quite like a cryptocurrency, but is their kind of version of dabbling with this world of blockchain. Um, And I sat down with Tom Mutton, who is the director of fintech at the Bank of England and is running the whole show on a CBDC. Okay, well, let's start with, I mean, obviously, we have a hugely educated audience, but it's conceivable that not everybody will know what a CBDC is. So can we just start by having you explain to us what this is? So a CBDC is what a lot of central banks around the world, I think most of them now, are planning to do as their kind of response to the rise of cryptocurrencies and payments that are running probably a bit faster than their traditional infrastructure and how they can improve their own systems with that technology, potentially. Most of them are still in development phase, considering whether they should do it or not, looking at the technology and kind of poking around. Some of them have been a bit more successful than others. But as my conversation with Tom went, he kind of explained, you know, the various parameters that a UK digital pound might look like. It's a digital banknote. It's for everyday payments, something you can use online or in store. Because it's intended to be like cash, uh, it won't be remunerated, so it won't pay an interest rate. For the early days, at least, we'll apply a limit on how much people can hold just to make sure we have a smooth introduction. So we're probably thinking 10 to 20,000 pounds individual limit. Okay, so we've got a digital pound, effectively. It's like cash, but it's not cash. It's digital cash. So it has a lot of the characteristics of cash. But I think a lot of people would look at this and they'd say, there's nothing wrong with the payment system that I use. I can transfer money very fast. My debit card works really well. My credit card works very well. I can use PayPal. I have no problem here. Why do I need a different payment system? What does Tom say about that? Yeah, I think it's recognised by the Bank of England and and by probably all of us um, listening to this that, you know, the UK's payment infrastructure, at least in terms of how retail users use it, 
is very advanced compared to some others around the world. We're all used to getting everything instantly. So this isn't necessarily something that we need compared to other economies that might have already experimented with this, like Nigeria and Jamaica. But Tom's answer to why they would want to deal with this is that it's not only that we need to make the UK more future-proof. You know, This is something that they may need to think about at some point. We've seen a lot of innovation in payments, and that's really benefited users. Um, the UK was an early adopter of contactless payments, and that's very convenient, and I think merchants like it. But we need to make sure we continue to be at the front of that innovation. And we're thinking about how can we support that innovation? And we're very interested in the idea that we could provide the safest form of money available, the government the bank, the Financial Conduct Authority, are thinking about how to support innovations in things like non-bank stablecoins, including through legislation and regulation. We very much see a central bank digital currency as part of a diverse monetary system with choice, but all anchored around confidence and certainty in money. And we very much think that actually having the ability to move from a digital pound into a regulated stablecoin payment stablecoin, into tokenized bank deposit, into a conventional bank deposit, into cash is really important because it ties the monetary system and all our different forms of money together. That's why we've really emphasized the importance of the digital pound being interoperable and open with other forms of money. But it's also that they want to find a way that cash can remain relevant to the economy. It's definitely still important to many consumers, but is also usable by everyone. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm definitely a, an Apple Pay person. I don't really carry a wallet around anymore, let alone you know, debit cards or anything like that. And so the digital pound is their version of saying, OK, well, we want to make cash usable for you and usable for everybody else, especially if you don't want to be carrying around banknotes. OK, but I still, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm old, right? Still don't quite get what it does for someone who likes to use cash. So people who like to use cash tend to use it because... They feel they control it much more easily. And we've all seen those studies about how much more you spend if you're not using physical cash, if you're using a debit or a credit card, et cetera. They want to hold it and have it. And they're also very concerned by their financial privacy. And the only anonymous way to pay for anything is to do it with banknotes. So even though a digital pound is, from the point of view of a Bank of England, the same as cash, from the point of view of a user, it's just not. Is it? Yeah. So Tom had a really great answer to this, I think, because the Bank of England has been asked this question a lot. So this is a big topic. It's really big. First of all, the anonymity of cash was not something that somebody chose to do. It's just a function of the format of cash. And we've been clear that cash will continue to be available as long, for as long as people wish to use it. So I'm not sure cash is the right comparator. I think the better comparator is to say... 90 plus percent of the money we use for payments today is electronic. All electronic money creates a data footprint. And it's really a choice of who do you want to have that data and how do you want them to protect it? The really crucial thing is that there will be no data shared with the Bank of England, no personal data shared with the Bank of England or the government. We'll know what transactions have happened, but we'll have no idea what person did them. The wallet you use, provided by the private sector, will know who the person was, but they won't know what the transactions were. And that's a really big difference because at the moment, um, private financial institutions know both sides of that. They know the individual and the transaction history. Under our system, we're proposing we would know the transaction history, but not the individual. 
the wallet would know the individual, but not the transaction history. And that, we think, offers people the reassurance that um, the Bank of England will not receive their personal data and also that we have no incentive to use it for commercial gain. And what he was saying there is that the system that they may put in place one day if they do a digital pound, it will be pseudonymous, which means that they'll be able to see that this wallet used this many digital pounds to buy this thing at this shop, but they won't know who that person is. They'll be able to see like, you know, rough stuff on spending data, but you yourself aren't going to be identifiable. And none of that data really gets shared with the Bank of England or with the government. It's all going to be in the hands of wallet providers who make those tools or softwares apps that you might store your digital pound with. And as users, you get to determine how much of your data you give up. You have to agree, you have to consent. It's all under, you know, these fancy GDPR rules we have these days. Whether or not that's still appealing, though, (laughs) is an entirely different question. You know, Um, it's very difficult to think that, you know, as most people in crypto are very, we all always imagine them as people who are really concerned about wanting to hide from the man and hide from the government and do everything super illicit. Um, Criminals, can you imagine you them being fully bought into the Bank of England's messaging? Probably not. No, and I'm not bought into it either. I mean, John, you and I have discussed this a lot over the years about the risks to one's privacy from CBDCs that uh, they might say, well, you know, we we, uh, sequester it here and sequester it there and no one can see the whole lot and one person can see your transactions, uh, but not your transactions, can see the list of transactions and other people know whose wallet it is. And there's, uh, you know, all sorts of walls between the private sector that has the wallets and the Bank of England that actually runs the money system. But in the end, what's happening here is we're moving into a system where every single bit of a financial data exists outside our control. And I find that very frightening, don't you? I mean, yeah, th- this worries me. And I also struggle to see the rationale for it. I mean, I'm trying to be open-minded. And one thing I found interest in this uh, interview that, that you did, Emily, is that Tom does come across as someone who's quite enthusiastic about this and also uh, emphasises a number of times that the Bank of England is just kind of building the infrastructure because I've been reading a Bank for International Settlements report on this as well. And the the pitch of the central banks globally, because this is a global thing, seems to be that they want to act as almost like the kind of the Microsoft, so like the operating system. And then you'll get private companies that launch apps on top of that operating system that then introduce all these exciting new, uh, what is it? The Bank the bank for International Settlements talks about how you could have entirely new types of economic arrangement that are impossible today. And it's that thing where I'm just thinking, yeah, but wait a minute, that sounds as if it might benefit central banks. Like they can put a time limit on my money, for example, if they want me to spend it. But I'm not sure how it necessarily benefits me and there's an awful lot of risk in there. But I mean, do, do you get the impression that the Bank of England is uh, <laughs> cognizant of that? I think it's definitely, this is still a project under consideration. It's, you know, while you listen to uh, a conversation with Tom or you hear, for example, the Bank of England Deputy Governor John Cunliffe talk about this a lot as well, um, you hear them talk about CBDC and it sounds pretty, they're like they're excited about it. But it's also something that they haven't even decided whether or not they're going to build it yet. They say they reserve the right to decide whether or not we might have a digital pound for at least another few years. We think 
uh, the public policy case, the sort of conceptual case is made. Now we've got to get down to the practicalities. So we're going to spend a couple of years looking at that. Around the middle of the decade, we'll make a decision together with the government, um, which will involve Parliament and uh, a wide range of stakeholders around whether or not we build. Um, and if we were to build, then we think the end of the decade would be the earliest point at which one uh, might be available for people to use. So it's a long way out. Many things could change. There's even the possibility that it might not even be built on blockchain. At present, I find it hard to imagine we'd use a public ledger. Right now, I think there's scalability issues, the security issues, there's certainly governance issues, but it's it's moving. So I think the idea a central bank would use a, a public blockchain is is a long way from a near-term reality. But we should certainly experiment with it because we can't rule it out unless we experiment with it. But who knows, if we had this conversation in 10 years, perhaps we'd be saying, this has moved on. They had a technology forum where they brought in lots of private market participants to discuss what a CBDC could look like from a tech perspective. And no one in that room was able to agree, even by the end of the forum, as to what that might look like, which tells you something, right? It's still very, very much deliberated as to whether or not a blockchain underneath all of this is the best way to go. Um, and that means that the developing apps on top of it, will they be useful? Is this something that we really need? Is all still very much up in the air. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the US and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Emily, because, you know, like John, I'm open-minded and I like to do an occasional little tidbit of research. I had a look on the section on the Bank of England website where, where they talk about this. And they have a little section where it's a, a day in the life of a user of a CBDC. And it is exactly the same as a day in the life of an ordinary person going through a process of spending money at the moment. There's absolutely nothing there that looks remotely different. So I don't want to come back to where I was before. 
saying I can't understand what's in it for people, but I really, really can't. And when I listen to what, what John has just said, and when I look at the literature I've read on it, all I can see in it is danger to individual freedom, as John says, putting uh, the ability to put a time limit on money so it disappears if you don't spend it, the ability to arrange things such that you can only spend your money on certain things. You know, for this month, no one gets to buy anything except for food. Slightly extreme, but you never know. And uh, that person over there actually doesn't get to buy any food. There's the, the danger of it developing into a full social credit style system. And then, of course, there's the other danger, which it facilitates uh, negative interest rates. And there was lots of talk around this when interest rates were so low as to be nearly negative. Are we going to have to go to negative interest rates? How do we facilitate that without people putting cash in their basements, etc.? And a central bank digital currency does exactly that. It facilitates the shift to negative interest rates when required. I can't believe it's ever going to be required again, but who can know? Who can know? Uh, and that's dangerous for us as well. So I still, did you get any sense when you were talking to Tom of the genuine long-term upside to anybody except for those who like to be in control? One thing that stood out to me from my conversation with Tom was kind of around that that what is the main selling point for consumers here? And that was that, you know, if you were concerned that the banks aren't the safest place to store your money, which most of us aren't these days, but it is a hangover of 2008, you know, we, some people might still be concerned about it. Um, this is probably going to be the safest option out there on the market in terms of where you could store some cash. You know, it's mm. going to be in a reserve with the Bank of England. It can't be touched. Um Every means of interacting with your money would always be through apps that you have to give your consent and permission for. So um, in terms of, you know, whether or not they could put a time limit on your money, I mean, it's if you think that maybe the government might get so dystopian and start to start enforcing those kinds of rules on us, then potentially yes. But um, that's, you know, quite a long shot, I think, probably at this point. It's just the possibilities, isn't it? It's the possibility. Yeah, it's, it's the risk um, of possibility. Yeah. But I thought it was quite interesting that, you know, that he would bring up that as a as a as a potential upside, I guess, if you're concerned yeah. about banks, then this is the safest place to put your money because, you know, it's definitely a, it's something that maybe crypto people think about quite a lot, but not so much the general public. We'd focus on keeping the money safe, providing the infrastructure, and the private sector would focus on offering a really great user experience, really great innovation for users. And that feels like a really good public-private partnership. If we did digital pound, it's about providing choice. Um, and it's not about crowding somebody out or disintermediating. And it's not about saying, oh, we can see crypto coming or we can see big tech coming. We want to force them out. If we saw a threat from crypto, big tech, et cetera, we'd regulate it to make it safe. This is more about providing a service which is useful uh, to people in the UK. There is a big question, though, about is this going to disintermediate banks? Because you can keep your money in a bank account. And there is a degree of risk that your bank may be, become insolvent, but you're protected by regulation, by the deposit insurance scheme, the financial services compensation scheme. So yeah, we hope and we believe it's not something people should be worried about. But there is this concern uh, from some people that um, if you could just hold it straight away at the central bank, which is the safest place to hold your money, just cut out, cut out the middle person. Um, so we've adjusted the design of the digital pound to make sure we take account of that. I do think this is an interesting thing because, I mean, that's a really good point. The The crypto thing was basically born from 2008 and fear of the uh, the mainstream money system, if you like. But how much actually in common do CBDCs have with, for want of a better word, traditional crypto? 
because obviously the you know it's interesting we're talking about this when crypto was kind of born from essentially a kind of scientific anarchist community and now we're really talking about it as being a, the ultimate tool for social control and kind of like the big state actually you know kind of dominating everything um which is slightly ironic and but it also makes me think well I don't see how this could crowd out the likes of Bitcoin, for example. They're not intended to be like for like or even run on the same plane. I think it's often a, a, a misnomer that crypto and CBDC are the same thing. The only way in which they are similar is that they might both potentially be on blockchain, but that's not even a given yet. So really, there's not that much similarity between them because the Bank of England's digital pound, for example, would be, you know, you'd only be able to hold a maximum of 10, 20,000 pounds. There's no interest to be earned on it. You can't really do much with it besides spend it in shops if, that's, if it's accepted as legal tender. Whereas with crypto, I mean, it's a free-for-all. You can do whatever you like, pretty much. There's nobody really restricting how much you can hold, where you can spend it, um, because there are always ways to get it into other systems and put it on gift cards or lend it, borrow it, trade it, hedge it, anything you like. That's partly why it's unregulated and why it's considered highly risky, because there is no real way to oversee it at the minute in a way that regulators could ever be comfortable with. And is there anywhere that this actually works? Because I know that obviously a lot of smaller nations have been experimenting. I've no idea how far those experiments have gone, but is there somewhere that we can point to and say, oh, actually, that, this is kind of how a CBDC works? So there are a handful of countries that have actually launched a CBDC to the point of it being in circulation in the population at large. One of those is Nigeria. It's eNairo is probably one of the most developed versions of a CBDC that we can look at. And even then, it's a little bit difficult to see whether you could draw any comparisons to a, a UK CBDC. So for the eNairo, usage is up about 63% this year, according to the central bank governor there. And that is largely because one of the purposes of the eNairo is it's a means of payment for its welfare system. So if you are one of the millions of Nigerians who use its government's welfare system, you would get paid in e-Naira. That is obviously something that the UK could consider, but it's not necessarily something that's entirely required. The cash system in, in Nigeria, about 90% of its monetary spending every year is in cash, and it's also facing a massive cash shortage. So there's a really big incentive for the government and the central bank there to be pushing in e-Naira's adoption. Not something that we really face here. Elsewhere, China is usually the biggest example of a CBDC that's in development still, so it's not quite out there, but has some big adoption usage. But one of the reasons why it is so adopted in China is because it's a very different government system there. The state is a lot more involved in everybody's daily lives in China than it is in the UK. And I guess the presence of a CBDC there almost feeds into the concerns that Merrin was voicing about privacy and liberty in this instance. Emily, from your conversation, what do you think the next step is? What are the logistics around deciding whether this will go ahead or not go ahead? What will we, we as individuals, see next? So Tom said that the Bank of England extended its consultation actually on CBDC recently, and so that's live until the 30th of June. Um, and people can submit responses and answer questions that the bank has on you know what they think the CBDC could be used for, how it could be designed, etc., um, after that, there will be a roughly two years of experimentation, trying to find use cases, dabbling with various ways they could build a CBDC. Um, and only then will we get the decision as to whether or not this is worth it. What we've got to think about is, can we actually do this? Is it 
a practical thing to do? Is it operationally feasible? Is it technologically viable? Um, is there a commercial case for it? And that's what we're going to spend the next couple of years researching. But it's quite interesting to know this is something that the Bank of England has chosen to dedicate its time on. It's chosen to dedicate money to. With everything that's going on in the rest of the economy at the minute, I mean, it's probably facing a lot of criticism for that. And whether or not, you know, how much should we be future-proofing our economy around technology and the adoption of a potential CBDC one day? Yeah, I think a lot of us would prefer that the Bank of England put all their energies into thinking about the here and now, but let's see how that turns out. Emily, one last question for you. I'm ambushing you here and I, I'm hoping, not hoping, but wondering if you might give a different answer to this question than pretty much every other guest we've ever had on Merrin Talks Money. Bitcoin or gold? You have to hold it for 10 years. Let's see how I can answer this as an impartial reporter. Mm. No, you don't, you don't have to be an impartial reporter. I'm cancelling your impartiality right now for <laughs> a few minutes, okay? If you had to hold it for 10 years, 10 years, Bitcoin or gold? Well, to be clear, as a Bloomberg reporter who covers crypto, I am not allowed to own Bitcoin. Really? So I'd probably have to go for gold in that instance. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I think that... Uh, Every, every asset has its own appeal. Um, and partly, I think a lot of the appeal of Bitcoin has been to a generation like mine. I'm younger, right? I'm, I'm 28. We don't really get where the appeal of gold was because it's not a standard that we ever interacted with. It's not something that has really been in our lives as young people other than, you know, as wearing it as jewelry. So being sold a digital gold in the form of Bitcoin probably sounds quite exciting to people in my generation. Whether or not they should listen to that is, you know, entirely different. And I reserve the right to, to remain impartial on that matter. Uh, fair enough. John and I are much more on the physical Bitcoin side rather than the digital gold side, aren't we, John? <laughs> yep. Yep. Physical Bitcoin yeah. all the way. All the way. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. That was really, really interesting and gave John and I a wonderful opportunity to pretend to be open-minded. We enjoyed that, didn't we, John? Oh, yeah. It's always nice to pretend. Thanks for having me. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.